You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is Tony Klinger. Hello, Tony. Hello there, Stuart. And how are you on this fine Friday? Uh, happy that it's Friday, but then I'm thinking about rehearsals, uh, which I've got this weekend, which are going to be from 10 in the morning to 8 at night. So, a little trepidatious. <laughs> well, look, we got, I mean, that's one, that's one of the many strings to your bow just on this podcast, never mind your career. Um, so, I'll just give people a, a bit of a heads up as to what we're going to try and cover today. So, you're, you're involved with a number of projects that cover, uh, cover all mediums, as far as I can tell. So we've got, we're going to, we're going to look at the man who got Carter. I mean, and we'll talk about it in more detail. Your father was Michael Klinger and, uh, anyone with any, uh, any, any, any understanding of the kind of, of, of great British cinema will know his work and we'll get onto that in more detail. We'll talk about a film and that's a documentary. Then we've got, uh, a film project you're doing, which is a biopic, uh, just, is that right? Just a boy? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we'll look at your involvement with uh, Investor Angels group called The Creative Den, and then what you're referring to with your rehearsals, you've got a play you've written that's coming up in October, is that right? That's also correct. Cool. And no, last but by no means least, you've got a novel, so clearly you're a man who likes to sit there at your typewriter and get the words out there in whichever form suits the story. You're not afraid of any of them, it looks like. I enjoy the challenge, yes. Indeed, indeed. Well, look, let's start at the top then. So, the, the, the man who got Carter is... Do you want to give a brief synopsis as to what, 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 your, what your vision is for that as a documentary? I wanted to study, uh, in a non-academic way, the life work of my father as the film producer, and obviously the most famous title that he was uh, producer of was Get Carter, although he made many other wonderful films. He did. Um, and I lent that title to the people who, Andrew Spicer and uh, Tony McKenna, who wrote a book about him called The Magical Carter, which has won the prize as the best academic book on film production this current year. Um, and although there was a, a much more studious approach, I wanted to take 
uh, my father's uh, filmmaking career as an example uh, of what independent film producing and production is about. And I wanted to contextualise that with where he came from and what it, it was that made him like that and made him able to do what he did, um, you know, complete with his rich Soho Jewish heritage and um, how that may have helped make that possible. Now, I, I, I said to you before we started the podcast that I spoke to uh, a couple of filmmaker friends of mine who are big fans of of, of your dad's work as, as, and very much particularly get Carter. And I wanted to, and I, it was it was based on a quote you'd you, I'd read from yourself about talking about the movie, and um, t- sort of this idea of what 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 Get Carter says about British culture, because um, obviously it, it kind of it was saying something very different than what most films might have been saying at the time about Britain, and um, a friend of mine, Marcus Shepherd, who's a, a writer director, he he if, if you don't mind me sort of reading what he said, he said, he said, though a crime flick and possibly the only true British noir, one of the few about the working class without romanticising or patricising, or patronising, sorry, it's a, it's a grubby and real, real perfect companion piece to The Long Good Friday, where the coming of the new power and money destroys our working class anti-hero. The end shooting and its industrial location says as much about the coming of the 1970s as Hoskins face in The Long Good Friday, realising the 80s are here and they are finished. Does that does that resonate with uh, with thoughts and, and other sort of recollections yet that, that that people have about the movie? Yes, I would only question that. Get Carter was the bookend. It was Longer Friday was its bookend. Uh, yeah. But uh, the, the 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 thing I do agree with, and I think I intimated in in my opening remark, was that the the film reflected the sensibilities of the filmmakers, the director and, and also the star, who mm. were all working class boys from a socialist background um, and, and were in effect outsiders. Mm. And that's part of what made Get Carter what it is. And you can't fake that. Um, and that's why I think uh, to a degree myself I'm an outsider because although I grew up to success I started off in Hackney and, and uh, it, 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 you remember that it, it colours your thinking yeah. um, and, and, and in no way is detrimental to it in my opinion I think that helps you uh, I think it's an advantage in a funny kind of creative way yeah. although it's a disadvantage socially obviously and sure. financially uh, but I think yeah I think those that's a very interesting um viewpoint and I do agree with it and I think that probably we were less aware everybody involved was less aware of that as a motivating factor but in retrospect you could certainly see it yeah I mean obviously time is the thing that tells you this isn't it I mean at the time it was I guess it was a a kind of it must have felt like a knee-jerk reaction to everything that's happening around them like any like any kind of artistic statement you know especially in the context of the time Mm. where there'd been the period where there'd been like the gritty cinema of the loneliness of the long distance runner and all that uh, 10, 15 years before. But it had got into sort of, if you could imagine, in a creative way, a kind of uh, glam rock kind of vision of Britain that was all hipsters and swinging London and all that, which was bullshit. Um, You know, yes, that was there, but it wasn't what, the average person experienced. They they may have worn a miniskirt, but they certainly didn't have an MGB. 
Um, yeah, yeah, no, that was kind of that, there's conversations I've had with my dad. My dad grew up in Liverpool, you know, yeah. the, 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 where the Beatles were from. But he 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 looks at footage that goes, "This was the '60s." And he's going, "That wasn't how it was where I lived." <laughs> yeah, no, I remember, I remember distinctly uh, going looking for locations around the period of Get Carter. Yeah, uh, and driving up north and coming off the motorway, which was then uh, uh, existing, and arriving at Liverpool where there were men on strike outside of factories and it was a different country. It was a completely different place. And Newcastle had that too. It was a different world. I remember filming, I was an assistant director, a very lowly position on a film called Up the Junction. Yeah. And I remember being, uh, us shooting at, you know, at night in Battersea and you might as well have been a thousand miles from Swinging London. It was, <laughs> It was, you know, people were playing football with hubcaps, seriously. And, you know, the, the keeping order on the set when there were, you know, pr- people with, with problems uh, was a, an art form all of its own. Um, it, it was a different world. And, and I think Get Carter was more, the reason why it's resonated and still resonates is because it was honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so where whereabouts are you in the, in the process of, of, of making the Man Who Got Carter then? Where, 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 I have, where? I've completed about 80-90% of all the interviews. Okay. Um, and, you know, so I've done Michael Caine, and we did Mickey Rooney, fortunately, before he passed, uh, and many directors and writers and people and technicians. And now we're doing the bit where we're trying to recreate 1920s and 30s Soho with the joys of VFX. Yeah. Um, and we're also, you know, doing the finishing edits and things like that. So it will be... It won't be till late spring, early summer next year that it'll be ready. But it's okay. it's it's been, we've been working on it for seems like forever. But to do it justice, I thought I'd take the time and get it right if I could. Yeah. And you know, we've been doing a lot of work over a long period, and, and now I'm happy to say I've also brought on board because I wanted to be more involved uh, creatively. Hmm. Uh, a, a wonderful producer in the in Colin Vane's, you know, he did the uh, gangs and. Uh, Gangs in New York and, and worked with the Weinsteins for many years as head of production. Yeah. Um, and so that, and that keeps me honest as well because he could say, you know, objectively that you don't need that bit and you need more of this bit, mm. which is difficult for me, obviously, to maintain that distance. Now, I mean, ap- apropos of just a complete coincidence, I don't know if you've seen the news coming out of, um, out of, out of Toronto this week from British filmmakers saying how the middle classes are... Uh, are overrun, are, are, are sort of making cinema for themselves and stuff, and there isn't that voice for the working classes. It's sort of you, you, you could, you could have a, you could have a, a documentary that sort of <laughs> could be very well timed in terms of. Well, it's, it's very true. And funnily enough, I think I saw Colin uh, posting that on his Facebook page just uh, today. Mm, yeah, no, it's literally coming out at the moment. There's been there's yeah, been a... and, I, and I, I 100% agree with it, and it's been going on for years. It's always been like that, um, and I. Hate it, and I I can't be part of it because I'm not born that way. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, it's it, yeah, you can fake it, I suppose, but it's just like you look at it and you think, well, who are these ponces and why are they in control? And and it's just I, 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 everything I don't like about our country comes out in in that statement, um, and it's a great shame because there's a lot of people with a lot of talent who don't have a voice, and I suppose that the 
end of an era, which is what's happening around us at the moment. Mm. I mean, by that, the, the major broadcasters are fragmenting yeah. um, and reconfiguring will actually be of benefit to the people who haven't got a complete voice at the moment. And mm. I think that's a real positive because I think, uh, although I love the idea of the BBC and some of the things they do are wonderful, I th- I'd like to tear the building down. Um, I just hate the way they behave and the arrogance of the organisation. But there you go. Uh, it doesn't matter if I upset them now because there's nothing they can do with me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so in, in terms of in terms of making making a documentary as opposed to making a feature, a, a, a sort of a, a feature film. Um, obviously, it's a feature length documentary. But what what are the what are the Differences in the in the challenges when you're making a documentary versus making some sort of sort of a linear narrative that you've written as a script. <laughs> well, strangely enough, I love the idea of the freedom of of documentary filmmaking, mm. uh, and 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 that's a, a huge plus. The minuses are number one, money. Uh, you've got less money, right? And as a consequence, what can happen if you're not careful? If you try to do it if you try to do it independently, truly independently, mm. is you've got less money, which means you end up asking, in effect, for favours. Um, not necessarily for freebies, but, I mean, you, you, can you do this at a special rate? Can can you give me five days hire on that camera for three days? And that kind of stuff. Yeah. And as a consequence, the quality that you would get on a feature is diminished because on a feature, you just, you're not asking for favours, really. You're... You'll say, I want that, and I'm paying you for it, so give it to me. Hmm. Um, and you therefore get the best camera, and you get the best hire deals, and the transportation, and everything's lovely. Um, <laughs> and so that comes with a price too, because people expect a return based on their investment, uh, clearly. So you're less likely to have those kind of problems on a documentary, but more likely to have a lack of money problems, because you've got a lack of money. Um, and... I also think that there are fictions around the idea that it's easier, well, it is easier, but it's not as easy as is perceived to create a a revenue stream for a documentary. It just is tough. Um, So I always try and not use those words. In fact, I I remember when we coined the word rockumentary for the film I made with The Who, The Kids Mm. Are All Right, because I wanted to avoid the word documentary. Um, and it and it and it worked perversely because people regarded it as kind of a feature. Uh, and the minute oh, you get regarded yeah. that way, you get a better bookings and you get more money, and that enables you to do more good stuff. Um, so th- these things, there is a a level below which the money spent that you've got diminishes the quality of the product that you're creating. And mm. although if you had infinite time and infinite uh, resources doesn't mean it get better. It does, to a degree, depend on you being able to get a good cameraman, a good sound person, uh, it, you know, the normal stuff that you need, which sometimes becomes kind of unavailable when you have too low a budget. Okay, so it's like it's almost like you invite an element of risk. <laughs> the, the, the less the less you've got to spend, the more you've got to take a chance in terms of. Well, yeah, and, and, and mistakes get made because yeah. you do tend to. And I try not to, but you do tend to compromise a little bit because you'll get somebody who's not quite as good a camera person as the person you would have used had you have had the budget. 
and they've got a piece of kit that's not quite up to scratch and then you see them not using proper clip-on mics because they say look i can do it like this and then you go home and listen to the rushes and unfortunately the sound's not well recorded you've got to do it again it's not a saving it's a full saving um it's you. like i remember when i was teaching a lecture at university and i would remember over and over again students that could be otherwise great would uh, take the camera off the tripod because they thought it was quicker. It wasn't quicker. It just was easier. Um, and, uh, and as a consequence, what would happen is you get stuff that should have been on a tripod and wasn't. Um, didn't look great. And so, you know, you have to figure those things out. So I try and figure out a strategy for the production before we start, which is kind of my producer hat. And then I try and take that hat off and try and do the rest like a proper artist should. <laughs> um, but it's it's tough because that's uh, it's a real dichotomy, you know. You you're kind of split in two, um, and what should win is what's creatively right. But sometimes you have to do what's possible. Indeed, um, you know. That, that I suppose is the answer to your question. In, in, in terms, of obviously, if you're doing a documentary about your father, so there's a sense of obviously you know quite a lot of the story, but. When you were doing the interviews, what, what, were, what were some of the major surprises for you to find out? Because there must have been some journey for you as a discovery as much as anybody else yeah. will. I mean, I, yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, funny enough, this is also comes in the play I've just uh, write, written, mm. is that the, um, there's, there's, the, there's the imaginary Michael Klinger that's in my head that was the one, is daddy. Yeah. Uh, and then there's the one that was this professional person. And then there's the one that he was perceived to be by the people that work with him. And they are distinctly three different people. And the thing I found uh, in doing all this work is actually those things that are common to all three strands. His sense of humour, his uh, ability to dominate a room, his ability to sell a product, to raise money, which became... Which is which, which transcended all of the all of the above, hmm. and and those things became either reinforced or knocked down, um, and in, actually in those cases all reinforced. And then there were things that I thought other people knew that didn't like. For example, it's not a major issue, except it was in his lifetime. It, it turned out that only myself and one other person knew he had a photographic memory. Okay. Didn't tell anyone. Uh, <laughs> it was a secret because he would be able to, like, you know, somebody would say, "Oh no, you said so and so," and he literally could, he, he could recall the t what you were wearing, the date it was, everything about the meeting, what was in the contract, what line it was on, everything. Blimey! And it's a big advantage. Mm. And, you know, so I, I, I thought that was a very interesting sidelight on him uh, that people didn't didn't realise and he didn't reveal. Um, he also, uh, people would assume because he had a, a maybe an even broader Cockney accent than myself, he, he, uh, that he would be an all gold blimey kind of geezer. Mm. Didn't know that he'd read all the Dostoevsky before he was 14. Um, you know, he was that kind of guy. Um, and that combination, those strands are what makes a person interesting. You know, and, and I suppose I have a special insight because as much research as you could do, you wouldn't mm. know that unless you were as close as I was. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so 
So you, 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 your plan is, I mean, I was just thinking there, there, there was, I was reading a quote from you that uh, made me think it could almost be a clarion call for today, you know, in terms of why somebody would pick up a camera or want to make a movie. You, you, you say that, um, and this is about your dad, you say he soon realised that distributors had a stranglehold over distribution, so he made films, including quite a few with naked people. So it was, it, there's an element of, uh, you know, that if you if you can't if if you if you can't join them beat them so to speak is the opposite of the usual sort of route. Yeah, yeah. He, he 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 did. He gave me a very graphic illustration of that, uh, sort of elliptically, but it became very direct. It was a story I've told it before, where he once said to me, "I was coming up to Newcastle where he was making Carter, and mm. I, I, he said, when you're on the train.'" Because I, I think we have travelled by train up there. And then we were, mm. gonna, we were filming my little documentary. And he, he said, you go to Glasgow, why don't you stop in Newcastle and we'll have uh, dinner together with everybody. And I thought that was great. And so we said we'd do that. And well, well, he said, before you get on the train, go to the kiosk and buy this book. And, and then we'll talk about it later when you get here. And so I said, okay. He said, I said, but I won't be able to read a book in that whole. He said, yeah, yeah, this book you'll be able to read just on the train journey. <laughs> and I did, and I bought the book and travelled up north. And he said, what do you think of the book? I said, it's very funny. I said, he said, I said, why did you ask me to read it? He said, because why don't you produce it and I'll executive produce it? And I said, I, I don't want to make that. And it's all tits and bums. I, I don't want anything to do with it. I'm, I'm an award-winning filmmaker. And he said, well, <laughs> he said, you're, you're, you're a little prick. <laughs> did he really? <laughs> Yeah, he said, because I'm going to do it. And he did that, and that became the confession series. Um, and it was produced by my very good friend, who I, who apparently I would have been working with, I didn't realise, called Greg Smith, who, who passed away a couple of years ago. Mm. And, and, and I, we talked about it later, and he said, you know, one day you'll realise when maybe the, those checks might come to you. The reason I did it was because that enables me to make films like Repulsion and Coldest and Get Carter. I was going to say, I mean, it is, it's, it's a brilliant sort of spread of work, isn't it? You know, at the one yeah. end, you've got yeah. the man who gave Polanski his first English-speaking movies with Repulsion and, uh, and Cul-de-sac, and then you've got a very sort of prominent period for that kind of UK film. You know, The Confessions of was, was you know, yeah. the UK film industry was doing very well, thank you very much, at that point, and then things people were going to watch, weren't they? Well, actually, you, you're right about Confessions being very successful because it was like number one in the box office. Yeah. And and I remember very well us standing at a urinal at um, Pinewood Film Studios and we were the only two, next to my dad, and we were the only two producers in the country making a film. Um, and that's how dead it was. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, that particular time, it was a disaster. Uh, which goes through cycles, unfortunately, and, and, and undoubtedly will go through more cycles like that, mm. um, because we don't have an indigenous film distribution uh, set up that has any power. And mm. it's not about production, it's about distribution. Of course, Distribution yeah. is power, and, and we've never done it. There's been a million ways we could have done it and as a country, and... You know, that would be a whole <laughs> other series of interviews to discuss what, how that happened. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But, it, but in, in these terms, um, you know, it was no accident. He was, uh, I think, the number one producer in terms of results um, per capita, you know, kind of returns and things like that. Mm. I think every year for like 12, 15 years, something like that in that period. Wow. Um, 
and it, it was because he peppered in between the, the 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 more crass kind of things, which actually he used to say to me. He said, "Well, did confessions make you laugh?" I said, "Yeah." He said, "Is there something objectionable to a good-looking woman without her clothes on?" And I went, "No, no, there's nothing wrong with that." He said, "So what's your problem? Don't you like laughing? And don't you like the last good women?" And I went, "Yeah, you've got a point." He said, "Yeah." He said, "And, and that's British seaside postcard humour. There's nothing wrong with it. It just is your snob, you know." And and actually, it's true because. I much preferred looking at a cul-de-sac, which I thought was a great film, mm. um, than I did a confessions. But I saw the point later because, you know, you have to pay the bills. Um, indeed, indeed. And, you know, and, and what made it, it, it important was that you had, it, he created, in effect, through a period, uh, what really was independent film producing in this country. Um, you know, the pre-sales, the minimum guarantees, all of those kind of things. He was the first one. And I remember him doing the first booth at the Cannes Film Festival. No one had one. It didn't really? Exist. Yeah. I remember the first flyers being given out. At that stage, they wanted to stop him doing it because they said, well, this is just messy. What are you doing? Um, you know, and, and it was de classe. You know, it was, you know, the people there were snobs, just like the BBC guys are snobs. And, you know, and the fact was, He'd been in the trenches. He'd been, I don't mean that literally, he'd, he'd been the guy who'd worked in Shepherd's Bush Market. He knew how to sell a, a kiddie's coat. It, you know, it wasn't, you know, he, it, that's how you learn to sell, because you sell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look, I mean, we could obviously do the whole podcast on this, and I think I think if it's coming out in spring, I'd love to invite you back on to talk about the documentary in, in more detail nearer the time it comes out, if that's okay, Tony. Of course. But it's a, I think I think you've given everybody listening a, a, a beautiful sort of introduction to it and something to look forward to next year. Uh, now, you, uh, another a, a film project you're working on, which is a biopic, is called Just a Boy. Do you want to give us a brief synopsis of what that's about? Because that's quite a powerful story, that one. Yeah, that's that's an entirely different kind of story, and mm. and I, I, I want to preface it by saying it's an upbeat story. It's a story about redemption because. Mm. One, two people go, oh, it sounds so depressing. And it, yes, there are elements of the background to the story that are exactly that. Mm. Uh, but what it is is about how somebody can triumph over adversity, whatever nature it takes. Yeah. It's the story of Richard McCann. Richard is the son of the first victim of Wilma McCann, uh, McCann of the Yorkshire Ripper. And uh, she, was, she was murdered by him. Yeah. And it was assumed because of his later victims that she must have been a prostitute and she wasn't. Uh, but that's what the assumption was. And that curse on her name, in effect, uh, of course, had a terrible effect on a six-year-old boy, which is what he was. And as a consequence, growing up in Leeds with that background and that terrible history, hmm. uh, his life was a downward spiral uh, to begin with. He also had a father that was, uh, well... Pretty, pretty much an alcoholic, a sister with difficulties, uh, problem after problem after problem, uh, yeah. living in a terrible place with terrible circumstances without effectively an either parent. And what happened was he, he ended up, everything against him became uh, 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 an unintentional dealer in drugs, really and was caught by the police and tried and prosecuted and put in jail. And something, it was either faith, but more likely reading, 
education uh, got to him and saved him. And he started to realise he could do better. And through that uh, will to survive and to grow as a person, hmm. he rebuilt his life and has now become, uh, through his huge determination and, of course, his ability, yeah. uh, one of the most successful motivational speakers in our country. And he has a wonderful wife and three lovely children and now speaks to thousands of people. He's uh, literally uh, doing speaking thing engagements almost every day. Um, and to see him now as against how he was is a story of, it's Rocky without the boxing. Yeah, I was going to say, it's a real triumph over adversity and despair, isn't it? Incredible. And I, and I want to tell it in that way. Um, and it, it, I get kind of caught between people who think, oh, it's going to be desperately depressing British kitchen sink drama at its most melodramatic and worst. Or people that go, oh, you're going to make it schmaltzy and very American because it's all going to be successful. It's actually somewhere in between. Okay. Uh, but it, uh, I'm writing it now. And yeah. um, we hope to start production in the spring. And it's just... Um, a really, really interesting and challenging project because it has so many uh, wonderful ingredients. Uh, we have to convince a sceptical world mm. that, that, that you can triumph over adversity and that people do and that that's a better thing than somebody starting off already in a great place and just doing a little bit better. This is <laughs> incredible turnaround and... He's a hero for the working class, in my opinion. And when you see him speak, and you can look up the links with Richard McCann, mm. it, it's, you know, I can, you can, all, all that stuff is him. Uh, and look at these speeches. He's just amazing. He's an amazing guy. Um, and he keeps me straight because it's one of those stories you feel you really want to tell. I was going to say, I mean, it sounds, it's, it's, it's when, you, when you tell it like that, it's kind of a surprise not to be aware of it, really. Well, you know, to be fair, before I was involved, he wrote the book, the first yeah. book, sold half a million copies in the UK. Okay. Okay. Uh, so a lot of people do know about it. And if you look on the site, you'll see on Facebook, you'll see, that, you know, when he's asked people who have attended his conference, would you want to see this film? The reaction is, is it's both spontaneous and electric. Mm -hmm. People really want to see this film. So it, it, it's an interesting... Um, debate we're holding at the moment which is you know which is the best way to mount this do we go the conventional filmic route or do we sort of go that and a bit of crowdfunding or do we go to the americans in the, because it's i, I want to do it with a slightly bigger budget that would normally be contemplated hmm. if you went on the film four kind of crapo way which is like you know you end up with these little films that have, don't travel and i want it to be an internationally recognised film because I think it is important. I think it shows you what you can do and I think it should that, that message should go out to the world. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. As, as a writer, what, what do you see as the challenges trying to dramatise well, it's, it's a true story. It's, it's, it's a particularly difficult story because um, 
I think you have to be honest in drama when based on, on, on real people and events. Yeah. And without causing intentional damage, there are obviously negative um, elements to the story which are difficult for everybody. And, you know, so I, I, my, my driver is to be straight and honest and there will be, there will be tears um, because that's tough to take. Um, in terms of, you know, it, we all see ourselves as natural human reaction as the heroes of our own narrative. Um, and unfortunately, there are, all of us have feet of clay at various times. And, you know, so I, the challenge is to make the person as appealing as you possibly can in the darker moments so that you don't lose empathy um, and not want to see the film. Yeah, yeah, because you, you, you're talking, to, to go into a life of kind of... The, that you talk about that they're quite serious crimes aren't they they're not sort of you don't do oh, them this, this was this was the, there were some terrible things around this hmm. um and you could easily turn it into one of those grisly channel four kind i'm not picking on channel four by the way but they do do that kind of thing you know with you know like and then he killed her and then he killed this one and then he had a big knife and this guy was haunted by that and and then we see like pictures of the dark satanic mills and all that and actually, I've always thought it's much more affecting if it's bright sunlight and out of that bright sunlight comes this terrible thing. Mm. And, and so that's the challenge is to create the environment where you go, well, this isn't so bad. Bang. You know, that that to me is a more interesting take on it. Because the minute you've got like a scene where it's all dark and, you know, like one of those Canadian films and it's like everything's dark and miserable. Well, then whatever comes out of it that's dark and miserable is no surprise at all. Yeah, see what you mean, yeah, if you, if you turn it up to 11, then you've got nowhere else to go, have you? Yeah. You've, so you've dialed do down to 11, say. Yeah, yeah, and it's like, you know, I, I find the zombie films where the zombies move fast much more interesting than the ones that they lumber about, because I could run up the stairs, they can't catch me. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of that on a psychological level, really. So where about, so you, you're in the process of writing that now, with a view yeah. to financing it by next year to start shooting? Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and of course, Richard, like every every person on, on these kind of things, is terribly impatient, as I am too. Yeah. But, you know, you have to go through the steps, and sometimes you can get lucky and it goes quicker, and sometimes it takes time. And so, you know, we're going through that process of dealing with distributors and financiers and all that kind of stuff, which is no day at the beach. <laughs> no, no, okay, well, look, well, look when, when, when you decide on, if you do decide to go down a crowdfunding route with it, then obviously... Keep us posted at Britflix, and we can at least certainly push that news out there for people to know when, if it comes about. Thank you. We might do that just for development funding. Okay. Uh, I think that uh, because I always, I've, I've always thought that for the potentially slightly larger film, the development funding and marketing funding mm. are where the crowdfunding should really be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yes, that's, that's an interesting point. Um, now. As a segue, then, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll certainly follow news on this film, and, and I'm just conscious of time, so we've got a few more things to fit in. Um, so, uh, what, one, one last sort of element that's film-related that you're involved with, but isn't a film itself, but it's about other projects, is the Creative Den, which you're part of. Do you want to talk about what that is? Yeah, um, we originally, 
we've all seen things on television like Dragon's Den. Yeah. Um, which I feel actually is more combative than, than helpful uh, in the way they denigrate people or make them feel foolish because they don't know everything that they think they should know. Um, and so there was that as a sort of vision of what we shouldn't do. I was going to say, and I think then, Dragon's Den's become like a caricature of TV, not an investment thing anymore. That's right. It's, it's cruel. It's like a, it's like watching people beat up somebody who can't defend themselves. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't see I don't see how that's helping anyone other than as an entertainment for the for the for the people watching it, which is kind of a reflection on them rather than anything else. Oh, uh, but uh, I was introduced to um, a man called Bill Morrow, who's the f- founder and CEO of Angels Den. Okay. And Angels Den is, I think, the largest uh, such uh, institution in Europe, uh, and reg- reg- rapidly becoming the biggest in the world. Where they do that for real, that Dragons Den does in, in mostly pretending. Hmm. Uh, Angels Den has something approaching nine thousand pre-qualified angel investors in ten countries. Wow! And we've gone into uh, we're working together, Bill and me. Um, and I am, in effect, I, I like to call myself the bridge. He calls me the funnel. I'm not sure. <laughs> Which do you prefer? I think a bridge is better than a funnel, don't you? But anyway, uh, I am, either way, I'm that person yeah. who assesses incoming projects uh, that are creative. And then, in, a, in as good a way as possible, we then say, yeah, this is a potentially good project or, or no, that's not wasting anybody's time. At which point uh, it then gets put forward to the FCA guys at uh, his company, yeah. or my, my partner company, and they, they check it out for legals and accountancy and all that kind of thing. Uh, and the basic structure that is um, looked at by me to begin with and, and my little team is that we look to see, does this project have um, a good idea, good script or whatever? Uh, does it have people that are credible involved with it? Um, and that doesn't mean they have to be experienced, but they have maybe passion, drive, energy, talent, whatever, yeah. or combination thereof. And it could be experienced people, it could be new people, it doesn't matter. Um, but again, we, we check that out. Um, and more importantly than the budget and the schedule, which of course we have to look at in the critical path analysis type of stuff, yeah. uh, we check out whether they have a coherent and, and um, defensible uh, marketing and sales plan, uh, which surprisingly many don't. Um, and it, I can go into more detail about that, but it, it, it's astonishing that some people, you say to them, well, what's your sales plan? They say, well, we've got an appointment with a sales agent. And I go, like, why, why didn't you get on a Ryanair plane to Barcelona and talk to the distributor yourself? They go, well, that's really, well, how are we going to do that? I went, well, you make a phone call and you spend 50 quid on a ticket and you go. I said, why would you give 35% away if you can't just make a phone call? You know, like, try for yourself, see what happens. Mm. Uh, and they look at you like you're, in, you're insane. And it's because they just are not regarding that as part of the producing role, which I totally see as part of the producing role. But, you know, I was going to say, even more so than ever, I think, at the moment, the, the idea of direct contact with a distributor. 
Of course it is. And they go, well, I'll see them at Cannes or AFM or something. And I go, yeah, you and 30,000 other people. Why don't you go when it's just you and him and having lunch? You know, the, you know, it, it, it's much more simple than that. Mm. You're making it difficult. And uh, unfortunately, lots of people fail on that basis. And there's another thing we do, which is very scientific, which I tell everybody, which they kind of don't hear, which is we run the scientific decometer test. And that is we check out to see if they're a dick. Um, <laughs> because a lot of people are dicks. And, you know, we, we look at them and if we see that they are people that, you know, uh, can't hold a conversation or aren't really passionate about what they're doing or they're not listening, um, that saves a lot of time because we, we're, we're happy to say that we won't take anything off them and we won't do anything for them uh, because we don't want to deal with dicks. And... The cost of this uh, is we, we is seven and a half percent of any money we raise successfully, mm. and two percent of the ongoing project. And we will supply some mentoring because we feel that that's good uh, protection for our investors. And uh, I think it's seven hundred seventy-five pounds for sort of like the access, the the FCA stuff, because mm. that would normally cost them thousands. But we do it for 775 plus fat, uh, which, believe me, means we're doing it at below cost. Cool. Um, but we, we, we feel there has to be some hurdle. And the reason is because we've experimented trying to do it for free. And you get people that just don't turn up or they just don't take it seriously. Whereas if somebody's invested at least a little bit of money, strange enough, they do turn up and do their job properly. Yeah, yeah, it's that, it's that all that is, isn't it? It's like it's 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 about how invested somebody is in a project because it's yeah, it's one thing waiting for that kind of somebody to come along to give you permission to do it, but there's another actually being prepared to do it at the same time. Yeah, and, and you know, we're providing access to real people that have real money that we have to look after, obviously mm. that you know important to us, and we also have access to distribution and sales agents and all that kind of thing ourselves. Hmm. So we can help in that regard and obviously with lots of production links and things like that. But that's not that we want to impose that, but we can provide that if it's helpful. Um, and sometimes it is and sometimes it won't be. And, you know, we've, we're relatively new, but piggybacking on the history of the Angel's Den, hmm. uh, we have, we believe, uh, quite some credibility and we think... Uh, we will do very well in this area. And it doesn't just, it's not limited to film. It's films, plays, books, creative stuff. Um, um, it can be, uh, it's not music because there's another element of his company that's music. Right. But we, we are actually one of the projects we're doing actually does have a musical association, but it's not in itself like a record company or something like that. Okay. So, and how can people sort of make contact with the Creative Den then? Is there, uh, I mean, I, I, they can email me and it's really simple at tdklinger at yahoo.com. Okay, well I'll, I can put that in the show notes then, yeah? For the yeah, yeah, podcast. we're happy to. We, we see a lot of projects mm. uh, and we put through a few. Um, and so far, uh, what I've put through as a recommendation has all been accepted. Uh, but there's there's been, I would say, in the first filter, I would say about uh, between four and five percent have got through. Um, 
but I, you know, which is not bad. Actually. No, not at all. That's a good, that's a quite a high percentage. Yeah, I mean, we we initially I was very disappointed in that, but when I realised, well, that's better than the norm, uh, I actually then became quite pleased with it. But it's it's a lot of background work on top of everything else. Sure. So we we want to see it succeed because then it becomes self perpetuating, and we want to be able to mentor people and some people who don't need mentoring. You know, there are both types, um, but we also it works best for, I'll put it like that, British companies purely because of the tax incentives and deals that exist in Britain okay. that don't exist elsewhere, which is not accessible for non-British entities. Uh, that does not mean we will not work with other companies from other countries, because we will. Some of the packages from America have been uh, totally fantastic, um, but they just haven't meshed with uh, British angel investor requirements because they, 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 it was hard to put them together. It doesn't mean they won't be possible. It just was in those instances didn't work. So this is this is about the EIS and SEIS scheme. Yeah, yeah, and and the new tax incentives. But what 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 I've also found, which is a, a thing that people should know, uh, um, is give yourself enough lead time. Uh, we get very unrealistic proposals. We had one, and I'm not naming names, but it was a good project. Yeah. Well conceived. Everything about it was good. The sales plan, marketing, everything was good. But they literally sent us the material for funding for the next for shooting the next month. Whoa. Yeah, and I, as you just reacted, was pretty much how I reacted. It was like, what, what do you want us to do? <laughs> I, you know, I, I can't even get it circulated that quick. And it's because we are dealing with a lot of very sophisticated people who would look at that as a really bad indicator. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, unrealistic expectations and all that kind of thing. I was going to say, I mean, I mean, tradition, I mean, anybody with remotest insight into film would kind of know that there is a tendency to be a bit glacial in terms of the the movement from, like, conception to making a movie. It's never a fast thing. It can be quick, quick, slow, slow, quick, quick, slow, but it's never... Here's my but, idea. Get the checkbook out. <laughs> well, yeah, I think what happens is that people um, that have not had lot of it, a lot of experience kind of had spent a lot of time discussing and getting perfect internally within their own organisation. Okay. And then they try and throw what the Americans call a Hail Mary pass. You know, like, you know, here's one's <laughs> going to get us out of jail for free. Um, and it just almost never happens because... It, I mean, just, it, well, you know how it, people are more sophisticated than that. Unless mm. somebody just loves somebody else and is sitting there with a pile of money that he wants to get rid of today, yeah, that's just not going to happen. Indeed, indeed. Now, that's, um, that's the creative den, and I'll put some notes in the, uh, in the, in the show notes to uh, let people know a bit more about it. Um, now, finally, just to, just to show there's, there's, there's just a, a li- one more String, string on your bow. Uh, you've written, you've written a play that's coming out in October. Yeah. Do you want to? It's called a tired heart and the big C. All right. Okay. Now this is uh, this is a fairly. A, this is coming straight from you, isn't it? It's almost like straight from the heart, from what I, from what I've read around it, because it's a very personal story. That you're... Well, yeah. It's but I, I feel it has a universal theme. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but it it. it it's, Sorry, it's inspired by it's inspired yes, by person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think everybody that writes anything is inspired to some degree. I hope by some inner truth, mm. um, and otherwise, it's pretty, pretty much going to be poor writing. Um, uh, it's 
inspired by the, well, inspired by sounds terrible because I'm now going to say the deaths of my mother and father. Yeah. And then I'm going to tell you it's a comedy, um, <laughs> which all sounds awful, but it's, it's a tragic comedy. Um, and it was inspired by the thought that when my father died, he died of a, a what they called a tired heart. It was a heart attack. Um, and he died very quickly. And for him, what I would imagine was a good death because it wasn't suffering. And it was terribly shocking for all of us mm. and in various ways that you know, I, I go into in the play. Mm-hmm. Whereas my mother died of the big C, which you know is cancer. Yeah. And that was uh, much longer and much more painful for her. And But it did allow us time to adjust our mentality to be able to deal with it and it had its own problems and solutions and so it was that kind of background that motivated me to start thinking well why was it so funny um and it was funny because Gallo's humor is funny mm. and it was funny because the people in my family are kind of like a british version of a neil simon play uh, for real, or Woody Allen kind of environment. Yeah. Um, and that's how I see the world, um, through that kind of uh, strange prism. And as a consequence, I, I originally thought, I'm going to write a radio play because I've never written a radio play, and I think I could do that. Hmm. And then I gave it to somebody to read who's from the theatre. They said, why are you doing this as a radio play? I said, well, because I think it's a radio play. And he went, no, it isn't. I, I, I want to put it on as a stage play and you need to just change these things. And I, I, I'd never th- thought about writing a stage play and that became an interesting challenge for me and it's worked out really well and I'm enjoying the experience enormously and it's much better being on stage than on the radio and so I'm enjoying it, the experience. I hope everybody else enjoys it when they come to see it. Now, obviously, you've explained the kind of personal uh, part of the story, but but the the, the way you've when I was reading uh, an article you, sh- you shared on social media about talking about the play, you, you the the humour you're finding in it is how is how Jewish families deal with death and tragedy, but in in a particular way, is that right? Is that how you? Yeah, yeah. It's it's well, it's like I think the things are universal because everybody deals. The Jewish way of dealing with tragedy is comedy. Okay. Uh, that's where Jewish comedy comes from. And most American comedy comes from Jewish comedy, so that's what um, people in Britain think is American humour. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and basically, I am of that background, so I, I get that. And whereas Awake is kind of supposed to be more serious... And the difference is that awake, everybody's drinking, uh, at shiver, everybody's eating. Um, <laughs> and as a con- and, and that's where you tell funny stories. It's not where you tell sad stories. And uh, it, the things that happen are, for instance, uh, and this is a real incident that happened, yeah. not to my direct family, but to somebody who we were related to. Yeah. And I've used bits and pieces from elsewhere, where the person who had died was put in the cha- Christian chapel in a, in a, uh, hospital after after their death and in in tr- jewish tradition you have to a person or two called shomers and a shomer is a person who sits with the body overnight so they shouldn't be alone okay and they ritually clean them and then they put on their prayer shawl because you, you come in with nothing and you go out with nothing the only thing you have is the prayer shawl you're wrapped in in okay. a plain casket and they were doing this 
And while they were doing this, they realized that the person's coffin, uh, this good Jewish person, was under a life-size crucifix with Jesus on it. Wow. And, the, and they found that a problem. And so they decided that what they would do, which is in the play, is unscrew uh, Jesus and <laughs> from the wall briefly overnight hmm. and put it, put it somewhere, cover it up. And then they'd put it back up before anybody realised and then take the body out and it would be more comfortable for them because yeah. they were very orthodox Jewish people. Yeah. And so they did this and while the guy was doing the uh, unscrewing, it, he didn't realise the weight of this big thing and it overbalanced and fell onto the coffin. Oh. And, and obviously was um, kind of shocking. And then the priest hearing this, it was in another part of the building, came rushing in and he sees these two mad Jews <laughs> with a six foot crucifix on a coffin <laughs> and, and was a little bit upset, shall we say. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, now that's a funny scene in anyone's language. And, and, and we, we put that scene in. And funny enough, one of the things that people said when they saw the run through was they said, the play is fantastic, the dialogue's so funny, da 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 They said, but that scene with the crucifix, they said, well, you know, that's a bit far-fetched. That's one of the scenes that actually happened. So life could not be more funny than, you know, the reality is you couldn't invent that. Indeed, there's no, there is now stranger than folk, is there? Isn't there? Yeah, yeah, it's, and it's it's all the ingredients of the scene with the uh, chandeliers falling down and only falls and horses. It's yeah. like you anticipate, oh, something weird's going to happen here. And you see it coming, you see it coming, you see it. And when you see it actually happen, it's laugh out loud funny, but you feel guilty because you're watching a crucifix fall on a coffin. Uh, but I, I like making people laugh like that, so it's kind of fun. So when, when, where and how can people, when, where and how can people see the play? The first opportunity for our debut performances are at 3 o'clock and 7.45 on October the 2nd, and, that is a Friday, and Saturday, October the 3rd. Mm. And that's at the Castle Theatre Studio in Wellingborough, yeah. in North Amptonshire. And if they want to contact the box office, it's 01933 270 Yeah. Or they can get on their website, which is www.thecastle.org.uk. Okay, well, I'll put that in the show notes as well. So that Thank people you. Can... Thank you. Uh, if they will, uh, it's like all my things. It sounds kind of serious, but it is honestly funny. No, I think you've, I think you've, uh, I think you've laid down the ground rules there that you're taking something very, very serious and dear, but then, then showed that the shine, shone a bright light on it, as it were, to show that actually we, we humans deal with it in all different ways. Yeah, well, somebody said to me when they first heard about it. I think one of the producers said to me, "Well, you know, a bit nervous because." there's not a lot of Jewish people to come watch your play in Northampton. And I went, well, there's hardly any. But the truth is, did you know that the most successful place that uh, the play that was almost ever in Tokyo was Fiddler on the Roof? And there are no Jews in, in Tokyo. And, <laughs> and the reason is because it's not about Jews, it's about tradition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is about love and loss and how we deal with it. And that's universal. Everybody has to deal with it. Indeed. So, one last thing then, one last thing, now we've, so we've, so far, just to recap, we've, we've documentary, we've got a biopic, we've got Investor Angels, we've got a play, and we've also, one last thing, we've got a novel, 
Yeah. Um, you've got uh, Under God's Table. Just just give us a brief synopsis on what that is, please. Yeah. It sounds like I'm really religious and I'm completely secular. So it's this is the story. I, I, I was um, interested for some reason. It came to me that the information came to me that Abraham, the, the, the forefather of, of, of the three great religions hmm. uh, in the West, was uh, born in Iraq, uh, then Babylonia. Okay. And that's where they came from. And I thought, oh, that's weird. So like the country that's like most avidly anti-Israel, anti-Jewish, in the world actually was the forefather of the Jews and that kind of interested me and I, thought, I put it aside and then I started to think well that's kind of weird so in other words they kind of hate themselves and you know, and, and everybody's hating each other who are the same mm. you know basic you know, groups and then I thought about the modern history and thought well as it is like Saudi Arabia places like that can't continue because that's just a repressive regime that one day will crumble like uh, Persia did under the Shah. Yeah. Yeah. Whether or not I think that what replaced it was better is another issue. Mm. That's not the issue I was encountering. And then I thought, I wonder what would have happened if they'd have found where either they were destroyed or buried, hidden, uh, the weapons of mass destruction that supposedly caused the start of the Iraq war. And it then... I wanted to sort of try and put those things together. And this is the story of what would happen if they did exist oh. and they could be found. And the secret location, if, if there, it does exist, is scratched under the table, which is the God's table. And it's called God's table because the legend has it that it was built out of the wood from Noah's Ark. Wow. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and so those things all come together and this is set from the days of awe and destruction, shock and awe, you know, mm. the first part of that war. Yeah. And goes through <clears throat> the present day and finishes in about five years time and encounters ISIS and how that's going to play out, the fall of Saudi Arabia and how that will play out and the next great war that will start in the Middle East. Um, and, I hope I'm wrong because I can't see any other consequence. I don't think it would be the end of days, but I do think we have major, major warfare to come. And it's based on all kinds of things coming together which are frightening and scary for people, like, you know, the oil prices, you know, could easily fall to 20 something dollars mm. a barrel, which will mean that countries are desperate to, who overspend. Uh, will be desperate to try and find ways to recover themselves or deflect uh, opinion. Like Hitler's Germany. Hitler's mm. Germany was about economics. It wasn't just about uh, hating people. It was about a way of pointing them away from their underlying problems. Well, I mean, look, oil is a... Is a is an amazing barometer of, of, of the economic wealth of the world and who's got it. At one point, it was, it was the be-all and end-all. But I'd regularly go to Norway... Yeah. And, the, and the, the drop in price of oil is, is dramatically affecting their economy. Yeah, and it will do. I mean, had Scotland have become independent in the vote recently, uh, their whole basis of their argument was based on, the, the Scots, Scottish nationalists, was based on the idea that oil would be $111 a barrel, roughly. 
and it's it's now 50 and going down. And mm. you know, what would have happened? You know, <laughs> England would have had to have bailed him out. It would have been crazy. So, uh, so, where, so is this is this book finished and ready ready yeah, to read? Yeah, the book's finished. I did a test marketing with a with a publishing house, which I found. I find I find publishers a mystery to me. They they mm. kind of give you money and then not do anything. So I, I've I've decided that I'm going to either I think I might do it myself um, okay. because I've had now three experiences with different publishers on my previous books. Yeah which have not been um, enlightening in marketing terms. Um, and so I feel that maybe I should do it myself. Um, or, uh, as you can tell, and everybody who's listening to this think I'm a maniac, and they say, well, this person at the very least has time issues. Um, but I feel that it's no point putting something out unless you have some kind of marketing strategy. Um, and so that's what we're developing at the moment, how to make it work uh, best for you know, sales possibilities. Okay, okay. Well, look, well, uh, keep us posted, and we'll uh, help help you with your uh, your marketing as best we can, um, even if it's just a bit of a push on social media and things like that. Uh, indeed, indeed. Now, one 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 thing that it, beg, it begs me to ask you because I'm a, I'm a writer myself. Uh, I don't cover all the, all the bases you do, so I'd be interested to know what's your what's your writing habit like? Are you are you a are you a burn the midnight oil man? Are you up at, what, with the larks? Are you whenever the mood takes? I, I used to, I used to be the, the midnight oil person. I never used to sit down to write till about midnight, and then would mm. write till about four or five in the morning. Okay, uh, and then not work till about nine. Uh, but I but I I, th- I think time catches up with you, and so now I find I come in uh, about nine. After after I've cleared up all my emails and stuff like that, mm. or sometimes I don't even look at that, and then I want to write two to three thousand words um, and don't get up till I've done it, and it, that's in all, any format pretty much. Uh, I suppose I count the pages more in plays or films, yeah. whereas I count the words in, in a book. Are you uh, are you are you an outliner or are you just to dive in and see where it leads? Well, I I I I was always I almost almost use film scripts as the outlines of my books now because I find that a really great way of getting a, a skeleton down. Okay. But, uh, but on my last book, I, and I own up here, it's a confession to all other writers. Go on. I don't, don't do it. I I didn't write an outline. I think <laughs> I had it in my head, and it's a hundred and fifty thousand word book didn't have an outline and I had to do so many drafts because I made that stupid stupid mistake um, because I forgot like the names of the characters and the dates and the, everything it became like a huge mess I mean the narrative was working it was fine yeah. but it was like you know I, suddenly Paul became Peter and it just <laughs> I, I kind of I kind of like it was it's kind of bookers interrupt us uh, <laughs> it was like you'd messed up your own jigsaw <laughs> yeah yeah it was kind of nuts and so I had to do a lot of remedial work and then I had to get the editors to look at me and say, what a fool you are, why didn't you write that line? You know better than this. You taught this at MA level. And I, yes, I know I did. Um, but, you know, sometimes you make a mistake, but I won't do it again, I promise. Well, that's, I mean, that's, but that's a good lesson. I mean, even, you know, a, a man with your experience, you can, that, 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 you can be overtaken by, I guess, by enthusiasm and... Uh, yeah, uh, I got overexcited. It's yeah, yeah. And, and, and to be honest, um, I can, uh, describing myself as I can say, intellectually arrogant to the extent where I thought, I don't need to do that because I can do it all myself. I can, I can remember all these things. <laughs> and no, you can't. It's too much stuff. It's like you're creating a world. I created a world. And 
and I had to really go back to basics to the point where I had to draw, literally draw, I, I may even put it in the, in the book, my own map of how the Middle East will look after the next wars. Um, just to, so, so geographically, it, looked, it made sense to me. Um, and then I had to do a lot of fact-checking, and I actually did pretty good. I fact-checked with people in the US and British military, the FBI, the CIA, all kinds of people. And it was kind of interesting. But some of them were going, how did you know that? Like I had some insider information. It actually was just pure luck or, <laughs> or whatever you call that. Um, but it, I, I, I got it pretty much right. And, yeah, you know, like when I was blowing things up, it was, it, you know, it was, I was sometimes using the wrong munitions, which I've now got right. Fair enough, fair enough. Now, look, what, let's, now we've covered a lot of ground here, and obviously the most, the most sort of news, news sensitive of, of what you've talked about is your play, Tired Heart and Big C. So do you want to just remind people of when and where they can see it? Yes, please. Uh, it's the Tired Heart and the Big C at the Castle Theatre Studio in Wellingborough, and that's it. Performances are matinee at 3, or evening performances at 7.45, on Friday, October the 2nd, which is a couple of weeks away, and Saturday, October the 3rd, one day later. And the price of tickets is £12 uh, for the theatre, uh, or £8 for the Friday matinee. And the box office telephone number is 01933270007. You should remember that. <laughs> and it's www.thecastle.org.uk and we'd love to see you there and I will I, I can't give you a t-shirt but I will I will kiss you if you come <laughs> <laughs> there's a promise well look yeah. you've been very generous with your time Tony thank you if you don't already subscribe to Britflix just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you.
Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.